it's not a good thing to overwork and burn out. As someone who went through the extreme end of burnout to the point where I became clinically depressed and in a hospital bed for six weeks, some days not even able to move, I feel very passionately about not overdoing it. Hi, I'm Demi and welcome to TNWC's Let's Chat series. Dr. Yumiko Kuroda thrives being in the operating theatre, not only because she's great at being a doctor, but also because she has such a strong passion for plastic and reconstructive surgery. So you'd think if you're great at your job and if you've got the skills, your job must be pretty great, huh? Sadly, that wasn't the case for Yumiko. Up until 2018, Yumiko worked as a registrar at a Sydney public hospital, but her job was mentally, psychologically, and physically destroying her day after day. She was working 120 to 140 hours a fortnight. More often than not, she had to sleep at work as she was so fatigued. At one point, she even worked 24 days in a row. Not only that, but for years, Yumiko experienced misogyny, racism, bullying, and harassment in her workplace. The hospital was a complete boys club that oozed hustle culture and toxic masculinity. Yes, eventually Yumiko did resign from her toxic job, but it was not an easy journey and it was not an easy decision to make. And this is still an experience that she is recovering still from this day. So here in today's episode of the Nasty Woman Club, Yumiko will be sharing with us her very tough experience working in this toxic male-centric public health system. You'll hear her speak about the long-term effects of burnout, the fetishization of hustle culture, and how she decided to turn her brave, incredible story into the very popular manifesto, Emotional Female. This is Dr. Yumiko Kadoda. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. How are you going today, my dear? I'm good, Demi. How are you going? I'm going good. It's finally good to see you face to face. I feel like I've just been seeing you on my feed for the past couple of months. And I have to say as well, you have been very, very hard to find in bookstores though. When I was trying to get your book back in March, I had to get, I had to like yeah. go to like four bookstores to get really? your book. Really? Yes, because oh, no they kept selling out. They're just like, oh, oh. oh and they were like annoyed, being like, yeah, of course it's sold out. Yeah, how can you, how can you just think you just come in and get it? But yes, I finally got your book though. So thank you for that. But it's so good to talk to you face to face, well, Zoom face to face anyway. Zoom, yes. yeah, that's good enough for now, <laughs> the, I think. The best we can do, yes. Yeah. So to kick off today's interview, I'm trying to do this new thing with guests where I do like this icebreaker thing with involving mm -hmm. people's phones. So you got your phone right there. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty much relating to the last thing on your phone. Okay. So okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, I made sure I didn't give you warning for this. So the first thing then is what's the last screenshot you have on your phone? Oh, screenshot. Yes. Let's have a look. Uh, well, it's reconciliation week. So I was looking at all these, um, yeah, profiles. Oh, so fabulous. The last one I was looking at was trading black. 
Oh, I, I love know. the trading black page. Yes, that's a yeah. very good Instagram page. Yes. Yeah, that and Nungala Creative. Those are the two that I screenshot on my phone because I wanted to go back later, check out their websites and things. I've been trying really hard to look at all the different recommendations to, for how to take action this week for, um, yeah, Reconciliation Week. So I'm, yeah, trying my best to see what I can do. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both so informative and I just feel like they just do it in such a way that doesn't make it feel like they're talking down to you. They're just very, very simple to the point, but they don't talk down to you, which I think is really, really good. Like the way they just yeah. explain this makes it much easier. Yeah. And just really encouraging everyone to be a good ally and, and lots of different links and sources and lots of amazing businesses you can support. So I was checking out some cute Aboriginal earrings and things, just trying to, yeah, support the small businesses. So. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I rec- I highly recommend for earrings um, by Aboriginal-led businesses, House of Dizzy. It's just, oh, love. Uh, <laughs> well, it's funny how you said before the interview that I'm allowed to swear because I've got mm-hmm. some C-U-N-T earrings from House of yes! Dizzy. Oh my <laughs> They're God, my yes. favourite. <laughs> oh my god there's this um shop in west end and they sell all house of dizzy earrings and it's so oh. dangerous because just like yes i can get these earrings oh my god yes so so easy access Amazing. now yes yeah yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> i could, like buy her whole shop <laughs> oh my god yes same yes anyone listening right now if you haven't purchased a pair of house of dizzy earrings just do it immediately yeah big shout out to them Mm-hmm. yeah yes absolutely. lots of bright colors really amazing stuff oh, yeah gorgeous stuff yep yeah and then the third question I have for you then about your phone is mm-hmm. what was the last dm that you received oh dm mm-hmm. let me have a look uh... it was from my local dmx <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've just been there to purchase some pins. I'm obsessed with enamel pins. So, oh yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. about that. Yeah, they had Aww. some like naked lady pins, so they were very cute. Ooh, very nice, very nice. Yeah. Wait, do bookshops like message you and stuff like that since you've released your book? Yeah, yeah, I like really? um, visiting as many bookshops as possible locally. I've done a few around Sydney, which is where I am. And I, yeah, I've been to a few in Canberra as well when I went there recently. I've not been able to travel interstate yet, but hopefully I can to visit some more shops. It's, I think it's just a polite thing to do to go and visit booksellers because they're the ones really promoting books and mm-hmm. helping you connect with readers and stuff. So I'm trying my best to support as many local bookshops as I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do you go in and say like, oh, do you want me to like sign a few books for you? You know, <laughs> you know what, I would so do that. <laughs> yeah, well, they actually encourage you not to do that, not to like ambush them. Um, we have to usually organize it through the sales rep. So I published with Penguin. So the Penguin rep for that particular store contacts them saying, hey, do you mind if Yumiko comes and says hello so that they're, yeah, so that they're prepared, <laughs> ready, ready for your visit. But yeah. I think that a few people do do that when they've written book they just drop in and say hey that's my book you want me to sign <laughs> I, I, I haven't had the boss to do that yet <laughs> I would so do that but I know for sure I would chicken out just and then I'd just be like oh no they don't want me to sign their book they don't know who I am no 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 <laughs> but, <laughs> you know what I have done though while while I'm there so like you know mm. I do the right thing and I organize my my visit but then while I'm there if someone picks up my book I'll be like hey wanna wanna um 
want me to tell you a bit about that book and <laughs> try try and sell but I'm I'm a useless bookseller I've had a few people say like nah it's all right <laughs> after, after I've offered <laughs> after I've offered to tell them about the book I'm like okay that's cool yeah I wrote it but anyway <laughs> yeah, they're probably like what is this random chick in the bookshop trying to sell me this book <laughs> oh no yeah. okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let the booksellers do their job I'll just yes. stick to mine <laughs> Well, the booksellers seem to be doing an excellent job because like I said earlier, it was a struggle to try and get your book about, was it March? Because it sold out. Were you expecting it to just be like that, to just have this big craze? It was crazy. Wow. Well, thank you for getting the book. I'm glad you you got one. But um, I I guess like a week beforehand, I had no idea because you never know how anything's going to go, really, because you don't know who's out there, what people are looking for or interested in reading at the moment. Um, I guess this year was a good year to to launch the book because finally people are more interested in women's issues. I feel Mm -hmm. like if I had published this book a year or two ago, it wouldn't have had the same impact because I feel like more people care now <laughs> than they have before. So um, I think the timing was probably a bit of a factor. Mm. But yeah, it's been it's been a very pleasant surprise that um, people have wanted to read my book and I've been able to connect with so many women, not just in medicine, but in all industries, really. Anyone who's ever worked in a toxic workplace or anyone working in a male-dominated profession could relate to some of the aspects of the book so it's been really interesting to to connect with all sorts of all sorts of readers yeah and I think also as well with COVID-19 all that starting to go down um last year I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. began evaluating their workplaces once they were forced to work from home they were able to evaluate oh actually working from home is easier or me working this other job instead of my previous job is actually less toxic or more toxic I think because of COVID-19 that might have influenced people to actually just start doing some reflection on their toxic workplaces so I think with your book that would have definitely been like an aha moment for many people being like (laughs) oh like oh my my job is kind of similar to this there's misogyny there's bullying there's harassment or it's an unhealthy amount of hours like I think Mm. that definitely impacted how so many people just found your book so relatable definitely you're so right about the pandemic I guess sometimes something really dramatic like this has to happen for you to actually stop and reevaluate like know what your priorities are I guess a lot of people are starting to value things like family now that so many of us Mm. haven't been able to see our family members for such a long time and you start thinking about what's more important so I guess even though it's been such a terrible time this past year it it also has some positives I guess because we're able to to be a bit more introspective yeah we're really able to like really understand like what's the true important things and how Mm. really so easily it can just be taken away from us and limit and be limited to us yeah definitely Mm. so for people out there then I haven't read your book that don't know your story, which I'm sure after this interview, there are going to be many, many more people reading the books. So bookshops out there, restock again, please. (laughs) (laughs) For those that haven't heard your story yet, what exactly has been happening from your experience in the hospital Mm -hmm. and medical system in regards to sexism and harassment from your perspective? Mm. 
to be honest with you, while I was still working in it, I probably didn't realize how bad it was. It's so much easier when you look back. But um, I, I was a junior doctor. I wanted to be a surgeon. So I was working in surgery, which is a very, very male dominated profession. Um, in Australia, only 11% of surgeons are women, which is such a tiny number. And I really didn't realize how that lack of visibility would impact me really. Um, but if you think about it, if you've got a, a bunch of blokes hanging out with each other, it's so much easier for them to get away with crude jokes and misogynistic statements here and there. I used to just brush them off and, and I probably had a lot of internalized misogyny too. I was laughing along with them to their jokes to try and fit in. It was pretty much an old boys club. And so, I remember all sorts of jokes. I remember surgeons walking in and if I were playing my playlist, they'll say, oh, what is this music? I feel like I've walked into a tampon commercial. They'll say things like that. And I used to just laugh them off. But when I look back now at all the things that men used to say to me at work, it's just so inappropriate. <laughs> and it's just, that was just normal for me. And I was used to that, which is really sad that I was, accepting of all of those things and when I think about the type of women who who get through it's really it's really hard as a woman to succeed in surgery you almost have to build up these walls and you have to lose your femininity to fit in and a lot of people associate um being emotional as a feminine trait so you're encouraged to not show any of your emotions and that is partly why I called the book emotional female kind of like your podcast you know nasty woman <laughs> we just need to <laughs> we need to reclaim these terms right yes. like you just have to own it <laughs> so I was like you know what I am emotional and actually that's what makes me good at my job so I'm not mm -hmm. going to apologize for being emotional mm -hmm. even though I did get caught that as an insult which is what prompted me to title it emotional female. Um, has he, that man, has he messaged you or like gone into your DMs or anything like that? The person that called you emotional female, has he reached out to oh, you? No. no, he hasn't. I have not heard from anyone at the hospital. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think they would dare contact me and say anything now. It's, yeah. I mean, even if it were apology, too little, too late. But to be honest with you, I don't think they actually feel bad, any of them. It's, mm. it's interesting because, um, so initially before I wrote the book, I had written a blog post two years ago and it was spread among the medical community. And I was invited to talk at an orthopedics conference by a couple of surgeons. One of them was um, a good friend of mine who's a female orthopedic surgeon. Anyway, my old boss cornered her in the change rooms and said, how dare you invite Yumiko to that conference? You've betrayed us. So that was pretty interesting to find out. Um, wow. It shows that they actually don't think they've done anything wrong. And so, it, yeah, it's interesting that that's their reaction to all of it. And my friend just said it just proved exactly what the issues were. She was like, well, I totally believe you that you were working in a terrible place because she she was just cornered and apparently my old boss was very very aggressive towards her about it was furious that that I'd been invited to to share my story at this conference so it's funny most, most of the medical profession actually has been quite um supportive and mm -hmm. 
they've allowed me to share my story and they want to learn from it to make the environment better for junior doctors coming through. But I think that the people who were criticized by my story, they're definitely, um, yeah, they're feeling a bit bitter from the sound of things. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious though. I yeah. know because I know your blog post when you first openly discussed what you're feeling at this job. That was yeah. in what was that? That was in 2019. Yeah. A few, several years earlier before that, that was when the whole Me Too era came in. That's mm -hmm. when it sounds terrible to say that is when men became scared they were going to be called out for their toxic misogynistic behavior. And I do remember back then, oh, it sounds so long ago. Oh, back then, like, it was like several years ago. <laughs> I do remember there was like a lot of workplaces that, you know, there was bosses being called out and like mm -hmm. oh, men in like high positions being fired from their jobs because they're being called out for their real dangerous behaviors. Was there ever that fear or discussions in your field then? Like, because, because obviously there was no changes, but was there ever that discussion or fear where they're just like, oh, we might get caught out for this real toxic, disgusting behavior that we're doing to all of our other staff? Was that ever mentioned? Not at all. It was kind of seen as a Hollywood thing, you know, oh, look at all uh, these actresses, you know, it was just seen as something that was in America, had nothing to do with us here kind of thing. And I think it's because male surgeons in particular, they feel invincible. They have so much power. There is a huge power dynamic at play. I guess it's different to other injuries where you can do your training somewhere else if it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. um, in surgery, there's only one training provider in the whole of Australia, Australia and New Zealand. It's just one Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. So if you don't get to... Um, enter the training program through the College of Surgeons, then that's it. That's the only option that you have. So that's why these junior doctors are so vulnerable because that's the only shot you have. And you have to really suck up to your bosses, make sure that you're always performing at, at your best and you're not meant to complain about anything because you don't want to be seen as a troublemaker. And so a lot of senior members of the medical profession, they just get away with all sorts of horrible behaviors, whether it's bullying or sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And I don't think this is just in medicine, but I've noticed that it's always the victims who end up leaving and the perpetrators get to stay and hold their positions. And there's something wrong with that. I mean, it happened in parliament too. Brittany Higgins has quit her job. <laughs> it's just so difficult to be the one who reports something. There are so many risks um and so i don't think that male perpetrators in medicine ever felt the fear even now i don't think they feel the fear i mean a friend of mine um works in neurosurgery and a woman was sexually harassed by her boss and none of her other um colleagues supported her the other women just didn't believe her they were like, oh no, the professor would never do that, that kind of thing. And yeah, when you're not supported, when you're reporting, it's so hard. And I think that's part of the barriers in reporting because you're scared that no one's going to believe you because you're this very junior person in, in the food chain. And, and even when you do end up reporting it, nothing ever happens to the perpetrator. So I can understand why 
the level of reporting is very low everywhere. So it's unfortunate, but the yeah level of reporting is still very low. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with movements like Time's Up, I'm not sure if you've heard of Time's Up. That's another mm-hmm. American thing. And there was a healthcare version of it. There was Time's Up Healthcare as well. But that actually recently kind of um, fell apart because oh, of really? a few issues there. Yeah, there was this TikTok doctor um, in Oregon who, well, he put his boner into another uh, colleague at work and nothing happened. This poor woman reported him and spoke to 13 different people, including one person who's very high up in the Time's Up healthcare organization. And so she was heavily criticized for not speaking up when that's literally her job. So I think that's a really good illustration of how so much of this is performative. It's so easy for people to be using hashtags on social media and talking about how much we need to stamp out this kind of behavior. But when you look at real life cases, do those people who tweet about it or post about it rise to the occasion and do the right thing? No, they don't. Most of the time they don't. So it's we still have a lot of work to do. That's what I think. Yeah, we still have a lot of work to do with believing the victims, not it being the first the first thought in our head being oh they could be lying they're doing this for attention they're doing this for money or they're just being too emotional it's just i think that needs to really change that that isn't the first thought mm. in our head like yeah it, it's the- funny how you mentioned the money thing and the fame thing because i saw someone post recently about the 70 something women who were victims of bill cosby mm. and that person said do you remember any of their names? And I don't. And it's and it just shows that they weren't in it for money or fame. Obviously, they weren't out there for whatever reason people think. Because really, if if they did, then we probably would remember their names. You know. Yeah. And yeah. the one and the names that we do remember, they're the ones that have death threats sent to them. Like um, mm. oh the podcast she is legend they just did an episode about um oh yeah oh what's her name dr hannah i forget her name the supreme court justice that just got put in she accused him of sexual assault and i just remember everyone was just mm. like she's just doing it for fame blah 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 but she was getting death threats like her family and friends are getting death threats people were finding out where she lived like mm. it's it's not like a fame thing it's not like oh they go home. definitely not oh, no, all those so people weird. obviously have no idea what it's like to to report it it's there's a lot of shame and to actually go out there and to talk about it first of all is a difficult thing to do because it's re-traumatizing for the person who has to do it exactly and then yeah and and all the all the stress that comes with reporting it's not sometimes it's not even worth it so it takes actually a lot of courage for anyone to come forward to report these things so um, but it's it's a shame that that is some of the dialogue that we see at the moment, even yeah. the victim of Garrett Hain as well, like, you know, his mates spitting at her when she came out of court, all that kind of stuff. It's still a lot of victim shaming and victim blaming culture at the moment. So I think it's still a very difficult place for women. But I'm glad that, you know, Grace Tame is the Australian of the year and more yeah. women are 
coming forward and talking about it and empowering each other to to raise our voices about it because the more we talk about it the easier it's going to get for other women who want to come forward as well so I feel like it's it's getting it's getting better but yeah we still have a long way to go <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's all about progress at least like there's change yeah slowly happening and I definitely think your voice in particular is definitely helping with that I a thousand percent agree because before awesome. your book before I read your blog before I heard your story like it just didn't mm. even come to my head to even think about like oh how much of a bubble it is the people in the medical and healthcare system how much of a bubble and how dangerous that is it just never came to my mind I just thought of it, mm. I just always thought of it as like oh these incredible doctors they can do such incredible things they can turn one bone and put it in another place and it becomes a functioning thing somewhere else amazing <laughs> like I just never thought of it as like there are some really toxic motherfuckers in this bubble that is in the medical oh, system yeah. mm, oh yes. I was the same when I first entered I felt exactly the same thing you kind of enter a profession thinking that's what you're gonna do like wow this is such an amazing profession to be a part of there's so much good you can do to the community and you're very enthusiastic and I was quite young as well. I mean, I entered med school at 17. I was a doctor at 23. And so I was still very excited to be there and optimistic about the world. And so I, I almost ignored all the bad stuff thinking, oh no, it'll be okay. Like I just push through, I just work hard and everything will work out. Um, but it was interesting because I received a message from another doctor today and she was saying that, I mean, she doesn't work in the hospital system anymore for similar reasons to mine, but she loved surgery when she was a young doctor. And she said to me, I loved surgery, but I didn't like working with surgeons. And I thought, oh, that's, that's, that puts it perfectly. It's exactly like that. Because I think that who you work with makes such a difference. It's, it really does. Yeah. When you think about the roles that we fulfill, we can't really exist without the people around us. And so for me now, anyway, when I think about new jobs that I take on, it's really important for me to work somewhere where everyone around me is, is supportive and friendly and nice. I, I don't want to work in a hostile environment anymore. And I've had to tell myself that it's actually not selfish to, to have those sort of demands, I guess. Like mm -hmm. now I think, I don't want to go through that same thing again. And so if, you know, for example, I've started um, assisting a few different surgeons in the operating theater. Um, I was working for three last year, but I've cut down to two because one of them, I just didn't like the way he was treating nurses. He was rude. Um, it wasn't pleasant working there. And so you know, I do acknowledge that I'm privileged to be able to, to decline work, but now I have to put myself first and go, you know what, I don't have to work with that guy if I don't want to. If <laughs> what's, you know, what's the point in going to work and feeling awful every day? I want to work somewhere, you know, not every day is, is perfect. You know, we're, we're all flawed humans. So there'll be days when people are grumpy and whatever, but overall now I feel much more empowered to to choose the sort of environment that I want to work in. 
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Obviously, as you've said in your book and also in previous interviews, the other mentality that you had when you were at your previous job was just Mm. literally destroying you mentally and physically. And that's the whole hustle culture, the whole toxicity of girl boss feminism and Mm. it's burnout. That's just normal. That's just, you know, that's just how it is. And you have spoken about this a lot, but I just would love to hear more your Mm -hmm. thoughts about how not just in the medical system, but in general, there's just this fetishization about hustle culture. We should always be hustling. We should also be Mm. striving for success every second of every day. And what's your thoughts on that? Having experienced the lows of the lows of that? Yeah. I mean, I can see the intention behind it. Mm. It's about working hard, but then this is to the extreme, you know, it's not a good thing to overwork and burn out as someone who went through the extreme end of burnout to the point where I became clinically depressed and in a hospital bed for six weeks, some days not even able to move. I feel very passionately about not overdoing it, <laughs> and which is a huge change in my own mentality because I grew up in a very Japanese household where hard work is glamorized. That's the only way to do things. <laughs> so, um, and if you don't work hard, you're seen as lazy. All of these, um, yeah, all of these kind of phrases in Japanese where it's, it's not a good thing to not have all these extracurricular activities and to be working all the time. It, it broke me. And I just don't want the same thing to happen to anybody else because gosh, mental illness is, is so hard. (laughs) And I just never want to be like that low again. I'm so thankful that I've been able to come out of it, but it took me over two years to recover. And I think that's what some people may not realize. You know, we talk about burnout a lot. It's, it's always, there's always some article about burnout here and there. Let's prevent burnout. What can we do? Like it's everywhere at the moment, but I don't think anyone really realizes how bad it can get once you do severely burn out and the recovery process. Um, I've spoken to a few different people who have also taken many years to get back into the workforce again, and it's just not worth it. Um, Mm. And I just really want people to put their mental and physical health first and not feel ashamed to take a mental health day if you need it. I mean, if you keep pushing, it's, it's just so detrimental and you know in the end you're the only one who's going to suffer you know sure if you don't go to work one day work might be a little bit understaffed for that day but if you turn up thinking that you know you're gonna let other people down by not doing that you're only doing yourself a disservice so I think 
as much as I believe in being a team player, you can't be a good team player if you're completely burnt out. So I'm, yeah, I really encourage people to look after themselves first after well, what I've, what I've been through anyway. Yeah. And I think as well, what's important, um, you've, I've heard you mention this in some interviews, is the importance of recognizing the early signs, not mm. waiting until the very end when, like you said, you're in bed and you can't even form words and you're mm. hospitalized. I think from what, you, from what you've said, because of the culture in your former workplace, it was mm. very, it would have been very hard to notice those signs of burnout and fatigue because there was such competitiveness and like if you were burnt out it was actually a good thing you, like not a good thing but like you could yeah. brag about it and be like oh yes I did eight days straight of being on call like oh yeah look at me look at me I'm great but that but then in reality is that's actually really really dangerous but because of the bubble yeah. you were in it would have been so hard to be realizing like that's not a good thing to be on call for yeah. eight days straight yeah yeah, it, it definitely is like a bubble. You don't really realize that what, you know, what you thought was normal is actually not normal at all. <laughs> like <laughs> the standards that were expected of us were just completely ridiculous. It was just not tenable. It's not, it wasn't sustainable. Um, and it was really, and again, I think it's because it was a male dominated area. I was in, there was so much toxic masculinity it was, it really is like a pissing contest. <laughs> like it's about who can work the most. And it's just so, so toxic to be in that environment because you're rewarded for working too much. And it's almost like, you know, ha ha, I had to sleep over at the hospital. Or, you know, it's, it's funny when someone's falling asleep at the operating table, when it's not funny at all, it's so dangerous um but it's like oh look at that person falling asleep at work you know it's just everyone jokes around makes fun of each other but really it's it's so dangerous and somehow it's not seen as a cool thing when you when you're tired everyone thinks that it's because you're weak when really you're just trying to be safe and sensible because ultimately you have patient lives on the operating table and if I were having an operation, I don't want someone who's tired to be operating on me. I don't want them to make any mistakes. I want them to perform at the at their very best. And so I think it's really important that doctors are working safe hours and resting and not made to feel guilty for needing a break. And, you know, we're not robots. It's normal to need a bit of a break to refresh. And I don't think doctors or anyone in any profession should be made to feel weak for needing a break. And if anything, it's, it's a sign of um, self-awareness and emotional intelligence. If you're able to, to notice your feelings and how your body is functioning. And I think that that's a really important thing to have that that was really lacking in, in the profession. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And you know, that people, these people are operating on complete strangers and you know, you, of course you want the hundred percent quality of work. You're not going to get a hundred percent quality of work when you're mm. fatigued or when you're tired. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you feel this, but when I'm tired, I am not mm. only giving like, you know, 30% of effort. I'm grumpy. Mm. I'm whingy. Oh, yeah. I'm like the most moodiest person ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I'm the same. It's so easy to be snappy when you're tired and it just adds to the overall 
demoralizing environment it's not good for anyone to be talking like that mm-hmm. yeah so I, I could just imagine like a group of people in a teeny tiny room that's pretty much mm-hmm. become zombies that have to do these these things that are so fidgety like the tiniest thing that could go like the smallest thing can go mm. wrong and they're just like zombies like I'd imagine that would just be so exhausting (laughs) yeah I mean it's a workplace that you you really need everyone to be functioning at the highest you know you need to be concentrating sometimes um the things that we deal with are time critical that we get severely unwell patients or people who are crashing and you need to really be on your game and it's impossible to be working at that high level all the time you can't switch off and so it's yeah it still scares me to think that people are working like that now because I don't think a huge amount has changed in the last few years I think there's definitely more awareness at least people are talking about it now but it takes a really long time to really change culture because we have to change how people think and if the people who are still in the system don't think there's anything wrong with it it's gonna take time to change that yeah it's definitely gonna take a bit but I think Slow and steady, we'll get there. Hopefully, surely yeah. like this, the whole culture and system of that will change. And mm. I'm I'm very curious, though. You've gone yeah. from working, you know, 120, 140 hours a fortnight, which is mm. it's insane for <laughs> any worker, to yeah. now at the moment you work, I think it's like you said, like once or twice a week you, you work. I have to ask when like for, for like for me personally when I've gone from a very high stressed environment where I'm on all the time and I'm used to being stressed when I then transition to a very relaxed calm environment I get stressed because I'm not stressed mm-hmm. because I I like <laughs> I think I think that I should be worried about something but I'm not does that make sense like when you yeah, transition yeah, yeah. when you transition from being in an environment that's just on all the time like you always have to be thinking about work and living and breathing work every single mm-hmm. action you do has to reflect what work is what was that transition like now to work right now which is just like it's your job that's your thing then you have a life outside of work you don't have to be always thinking about work and be on all the time it's great (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I I turn up I assist surgeries and I go home and I don't think about it it's great um it's not as rewarding as having your own patients because you're there to assist somebody else look after their patients but it's okay you know I mean I definitely had a bit of an ego like most people in surgery you think that you're going to be the number one you are going to be the main surgeon looking after all these people but I actually had to change the way I thought of myself and my job and to separate myself from my job as my identity and I'm actually quite okay with being the second fiddle I'm okay with that because it allows me to do all of these other things I've had the time to recover really and I you know I'm still recovering now I'm I'm still on medications and I'm not you know ashamed to admit that I still and I don't know if I'll ever come off them and I'm okay with that I'm not anti-medications at all I just think that whatever I need to function every day is what I need if that's what my body needs I'll take it and you know obviously I think most people would like to think that they can eventually come off medications. And I certainly hope that I can as well. But at the moment, I know that if I were to take on more on my plate that I'm 
going to go back there again. So for me, it's about setting those boundaries. And, and for me, that's work. For me, it's about choosing which days I'm able to work and choosing which you know, surgeons and which hospitals I want to work at um, that are going to be good kind of environments that I, I feel like I can thrive in and where I feel valued and a member of the team. So at the moment, every day feels like I'm going to work with friends because I'm working in a very friendly team. And that's something that was important to me. That's something that I, I very much value. Um, and on other days, you know, I, in the past year, I've taken up body pump instructing. So I'm doing I saw other, that. <laughs> other fun things like that, which are good for my health. So every decision I make now, I have, I stop myself and think, why am I doing this? And, and is this going to be good for me? And, you know, I teach on a Thursday at 9.30 in the morning. And when I took on that class, I ummed and out about it because I thought, oh, but if I teach that class, it finishes at 10.30 and then I have to shower afterwards. That's like half a day gone for, and half a day of potential income gone. But then I had to tell myself, you know what? It's okay. You're allowed to take half a day off a week just for yourself to do something healthy. And I love Body Pump. It's good fun, good music. The people who come to the classes are, are really nice and it's my exercise. You know, it's so hard to prioritize exercise sometimes. And when I went through severe depression, I just found it impossible. I didn't want to exercise. I barely, you know, I barely moved. And I know that it's important for me to force myself to exercise because it helps. <laughs> it helps with my energy level. It helps with my mental health. And so when I make myself do it, um, I think, oh, actually, this is quite fun. Sometimes the hardest thing is to actually get yourself there. So by doing it as a job, I, I'm more accountable, I guess, because I'm one of those people, if I don't have to do it, I may not do it. I'm not yes, always I'm the same. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I don't always have the intrinsic motivation. I used to, but I don't anymore. And that's part of mental illness, right? Like you just don't have the same motivation as you did before. So I've had to kind of be a bit cheeky with myself, a bit sneaky. <laughs> and how can I trick myself into doing healthy things? Because I don't choose it for myself at the moment. So it's been part of my strategy to try and get better. So I have to be a bit smart about it. So I've, yeah, so, so it feels good to be able to design my week so that it suits what I need for myself right now. And it's something that I know is fluid. It's going to change with time. I know that once I get better, I'll be able to do more work. Um, I mean, at the moment, I'm a bit oversaturated with book stuff, but I know that it won't be forever. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, who knows? Once this current, I guess, publicity period dies down, maybe I'll have time to write something else. So Ooh, it's, it's, that would be yeah, exciting. It's, yeah, it's kind of exciting to think what's next and having the freedom to know that I can do something else and not go back to where I was before I, yeah. I definitely have no regrets about leaving that's good that's good to know yeah and I because I was curious about that I was curious about like you know the fact you just you're getting so much publicity with your book and it's so well deserving because it, just so many people would relate to it and it would also educate so many people but I was curious like with you having all these interviews and um things you have to write and then these um uh being like bookshops and stuff like that like would that be overwhelming mm -hmm. and triggering like because 
it's a lot going on compared to mm. what you had situated for yourself that you only work, work for several times a week, whereas now you're getting many interviews and then bookshop appearances. But that's good to know that, yeah, it hasn't become too overwhelming because that's good to know. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably around the time of the launch, it was very full on. Mm. Um, now <laughs> I'm able to, now it feels okay, but in the first few weeks, it was really full on and I had a little mini breakdown actually after a few weeks thinking oh this is all a bit too much but mm. the more I talk about it the easier it becomes I remember two years ago when I was talking at a mental health event it was the first time I'd openly spoken about depression to a, a group of people and I just burst into tears I just I it was just so hard for me to talk about it but now I feel a lot more comfortable because I've had so many conversations with different people, friends, family. Um, and I think it's great that I'm more, com more comfortable with talking about it because part of what I wanted to do with the book was to destigmatize mental illness because it's something that is very common and it's nothing that you have to be ashamed about. There's plenty of people who are functioning and doing awesome things with their lives with mental illness. It's definitely possible to, to still have a life that's worth living and still function. So it's, it was something that was important for me to be able to do. And I'm glad that I'm able to talk about mental health without being a blubbering mess anymore. <laughs> it definitely was initially. Yeah. Uh-huh. And not only in the book have you spoken about these important topics, but also on your Instagram page and your Twitter, you also have been speaking about a very important topic, which I think we're going to be ranting about for, for a bit, is about mm -hmm. the, vac the vaccine rollout. Now, yeah. you're the first doctor we've had on the podcast. So mm -hmm. now that we have a doctor here, I need to get, <laughs> please tell the listeners, yeah, vaccines. Do we need to really be as afraid as the media keeps saying, like, you know, like, oh, be afraid of the vaccines, ah, rah, rah, this, ah, rah, rah, that. Can you, can you put some sense into people, please? <laughs> well, I have had my first shot and yes. I am fine. Yes. I am fine. Look, there are, there are some people who do get side effects, but mm -hmm. that's normal with any sort of vaccine, whether it's a flu shot or anything else. Um, I personally did not get any side effects, which I'm very grateful for um i am getting my second shot next week um and i think that it's yeah important to know that the statistics that are around um it's really important to put them in, into context um i saw a funny thing recently about how you're more likely to die from a gender reveal party than you are um <laughs> to get harmed from the vaccine oh so it's you know, there have been reports of some serious side effects like clots and things, but mm. that risk is a lot smaller than your risk of harm from getting COVID. The risk of getting clots is higher from the pill and other things as well. So the, the, the risks are very, very low. So it's considered a safe thing. And I think that we are probably hesitant in Australia because we've done so well. But other countries, you know, everyone's desperate to get a vaccine. Well, I, I just want to encourage everyone to get it as soon as they possibly can. As soon as you're eligible, go out and get it. I mean, we're still having outbreaks now. Look at, look at what's happened in Melbourne. Every time we get an outbreak, we're going into these snap lockdowns, which is, which is necessary, but still really hard on people, really hard on businesses, really hard on people's mm -hmm. mental health. So as a community, the more we can get vaccinated, the sooner we can get over this this pandemic 
Yeah, because in because in the long run, we can't be doing mm. these snappy lockdowns all the bloody time. Like by the end of yeah. the year, there's going to be so many countries that are able to people can fly to overseas to see their families. Mm -hmm. But then Australia is just stuck in their own little bubble. And in the long yeah. run, that's not going to be a good thing. And especially in particular, the people, the thousands upon thousands of Australians that are stuck overseas or Australians oh, yeah. that are here that can't see their family overseas. Just in the long run, it's it's not a good idea if we just, you know, have these snap lockdowns and don't get vaccinated. Like you need to get vaccinated. You need to. Yes, yes mm -hmm. definitely. We're very, very behind, but we do need to. We can't be a hermit nation forever. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Lovely, for coming onto the podcast today. Just thank talking you. about the important issues that you have discussed in your book and also through other interviews and on your Instagram page. Like everyone you need to just follow her and just also read this book you need to read it <laughs> i have to ask was this inspired by was it it was the oxford it was like an oxford medical yes, book. yes it is i thought it's so designed, yeah it's based on the um the handbook which is a a little textbook that students carry around on the wards i definitely had it close by at all times for for several years so i wanted to pay respect to the iconic handbook I love it so much. Okay, if I, you know, it would be a goal if you see someone with that iconic handbook and this on top as they're carrying that around, like both of them carrying around, that would be amazing. Yeah, that would so be that, amazing. Yes. <laughs> but honestly, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I'm such a fan of you and the incredible work that you've done. And I love your book and I love just, just what you're doing is amazing. It really, really is. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Of course, lovely, of course. Thank you everyone so much for listening to today's episode of the Nasty Woman Club's Let's Chat series. And thank you again to the lovely, lovely, lovely lady, Yumiko. I greatly appreciate you coming onto the podcast, sharing with us all your incredibly brave story. And I just have to say yet again, please everyone buy her incredible manifesto, Emotional Female it is in all bookstores. You won't miss it. It's got the bright pink and yellow colors. And I just cannot recommend it enough. It is such a fantastic read. And it is such an important read. I'll be in your ears again on Tuesday for another episode of Rant Tuesday. I'm your host, Demi Lynch. Stay nasty, everyone. We at the Nasty Woman Club pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the Mianjin land. We acknowledge that we are on the stolen lands of the Yarraga and Turbul people, whose sovereignty was never ceded. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.